no one knew the ceiling that they could reach. And they just, you know, were so well conditioned, so well coached, so well prepared that uh, they reached levels that uh, were truly unexpected. Our guest today is hockey legend and Hall of Famer Lou Nanny. Lou was a college standout at the University of Minnesota. Throughout his professional career, he played, coached, and was general manager for the Minnesota North Stars. He also played in the 1968 Olympic Games for Team USA and was instrumental in the selection of his close friend Herb Brooks to coach the 1980 gold medal team famous for the Miracle on Ice. Lou brings us back to 1980 as he discusses the stunning victory over the heavily favored team from the Soviet Union. Lou, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thanks, Don. Nice to be with you. So this is a pretty large and global, diverse business audience. Some people will know who Lou Nanny is. Some people may not know who Lou is. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on your hockey career? Well, I came down to Minnesota from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario in 1959 to play for the University of Minnesota Gophers. I played for them and I finished in 63. I had a contract dispute with Chicago. So while I was sitting out, I was playing on the weekends in Rochester, Minnesota, actually just a senior league just to make some extra money for my family. I was able to get the U.S. citizenship in 1967. And I played with the Olympic team in uh, 68 in Grenoble when the Olympics were over. I came home, turned pro with the Minnesota North Stars, who had just received an expansion franchise that year. Played for them for 10 years, and then I became general manager, coach general manager in 78, February 78. And I had hired a coach in the summer of 78 and just was general manager for 10 years and president after that, and I left in 91. And when you, when you stopped playing, did you stop playing in February of, of 78 and then take the coaching position midseason? I was playing in New York on Wednesday night, February 8th. We got beat by the New York Rangers 5 nothing. I got a phone call back in my room that night from uh, the president and another one of the owners saying that they want me to come down to their office when I get in town the next morning, which I did. And they were asking me questions about the team and what, <clears throat> what I thought should be done. And the next day they wanted me to meet with the full board, which I did Friday morning at 7 o'clock. The 10 members of the board was questioned there, and they hired me at that time. And then... Uh, Friday noon, I took over as general manager and coach. How did you get involved with the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team? Well, I was the uh, general manager of the North Stars, and I was in uh, Herb Brooks. He was with me in the 68 team. And on my way home from Grenoble, I said, Herbie, I'm going to quit coaching. The, I was coaching the university freshman team for those five years that I set out before I turned pro. And I said, uh, I want you to take over the job. And he, and he was selling insurance. He said, I don't know, if, well, why, why would I want to do that? I said, you'd be a good coach. You got you to do this. So I said, I've already talked to the head coach, Glenn Sonmore, and he, he will take you on as an assistant. So we got to meet Marsh Ryman, who was the athletic director, when we get back and, uh, you know, get him to hire you. So we went and get an interview with Marsh and Herb got hired that day and took over for me. So now Herbie's coaching freshman team for a while and then he got hired in the early 70s to be head coach 
when I was playing with the North Stars. And uh, he was very successful. He won three NCAA championships. And so when I took over as general manager and coach, I told the owners that I wouldn't do both jobs. I think you should only do one. It takes too much time to do both. But I'd coach till the end of the season till I could get somebody that I wanted to hire. So I tried to hire Herb then. He didn't want it. And then in 79, when I tried to hire Herb to coach, he said, uh, Louis, I really want to coach the Olympic team. You're on the Olympic committee, uh, selection committee to hire the coach. Get me the job. And I said, well, Walter Bush, who's one of our owners of the Minnesota North Stars that I was working for, he was president of USA Hockey. He was chairman of the committee. I said, okay, I'm sure, you know, we can get that done. We'd already had offered to a college coach who had turned it down. And so I, I called Walter and asked Walter, uh, you know, if the committee would consider Herbie, we, th- we thought it'd be a good idea. He said, sure. And so that's when Herbie got hired. So after he picked his team in Colorado, he said, Louis, he said, I can't play with this team against just college kids and get them ready. I said, well, I can't get you in the NHL, but I said, I, I will get you some exhibition games with my friends, some of my other general manager friends. I know I could get them to give you a game. So you, you may be able to get you four or five games. So, so he said, that'll work, but I need more than that. So I said, well, I'm chairman of the Central League Committee. and." We, that's our top farm team down there. And Bud Poyle's the president of the league. I said, you and I got to go to Dallas. We'll meet with him. I'm sure Bud would consider this. We'll try and put your team right in the league so you would get 30 games or so against the top competition outside the NHL. And I said, and if you're in the league, then the guys won't be trying to fight you every game, you know, just trying to take cheap shots at the players because the games mean something. If they lose the game, they're losing points in the standings. He said, okay, let's do that. So we went to Dallas, met with Bud, and Bud was great. He uh, he thought it was a good idea. He got the other people in the league to agree to it. So the Olympic team was put in the Central League. So they played a regular schedule, which was, Herb says, that's the most important thing that happened to his team because it, really prepared him well. You know, we've never had that done before for an Olympic team. He had selected very talented but young group. These kids were young. They were young college kids. And and to do what they did, did was really a remarkable achievement. The opportunity to get them to be prepared playing against men and real good competition was a big thing for them. How did they do in the Central League? They did really well. And, they did, uh, okay. Yeah, in fact, uh, I was just looking at one of the things last night when they came back, I think it was against uh, a Dallas team when they were losing 5-4 in the third period, came back, got a couple goals and won 6-5. But they, they did well. They uh, And you could see as they were going along in the season, they were growing. They were really getting to play well together. And he was making some changes during the year off and on in the lineup, but he was really getting them to gel as a group and getting them to play as a team real well. But the one of the most important factors in their success was the way he trained them. You see, one of the things about the Russians is not only are they extremely talented, no one was in better condition. They worked really hard at it. And Herb knew this. And he hired Jack Blatherwick, who this year will be honored in the Lester Packer Hall of Fame, which is really a great honor and a well-deserved one for him. And Jack was the guy that Herb used at the university in the, on the college team. And he was way ahead of his time in conditioning techniques. And he still is. I mean, the guy is amazing. And so he, he worked with these kids. 
He gave her drills and ideas and conditioning methods to get these kids ready to play. And the most amazing thing was when they got to play in the Olympics, nobody was better conditioned than them. Even the Russians, they were as well conditioned as the Russians, which was a big key because even the pressure of the game, they weren't going to get tired out or, you know, worn down like teams had so often been against the Russians, especially U.S. teams, because they never trained as hard as the Russians did. When you think about the way that the team was selected, was it designed to compete with the Soviets or was it designed to be competitive against any competition? Well, you got to be, you know, a realist. Nobody expected this team to beat the Russians. You would hope that they beat the Russians, but really, and if the team played again, you know, another 20 times, it probably wouldn't win another game. So it's just, that's just the way it is. They were as good a team as there was in the league. So you just couldn't have that. But but they were designed to be a, a competitive team and, and, and go to their strengths. No one knew the ceiling that they could reach. And they just, you know, were so well conditioned, so well coached, so well prepared that they reached levels that were truly unexpected. Maybe you could take a little time to describe the Soviet team because they were extraordinarily dominant at the time. Well, they still were. I mean, you know, that's the beauty of playing in the Olympics. One game playoffs, you know, you, you can win a game. You don't have to play them two, three, five, seven games. And these guys had won the, the most championships of the last 20 years before that. They won the most world championships. They won the most Olympics. They, they played a series, which I still think is the greatest series I've ever seen in any sport, called the Summit Series, in 1972 against the Canadians. So the Canadians had an all-star team. They, they started training in August. They played an eight-game series, four games in America, four in Russia. And it went down to the final like minute of the eighth game when the Canadians beat the Russians. But these were the top players in the world, in the NHL, in the world, and in Russia. And it was the most magnificent bit of hockey you you can never see. It's been on all different sports channels, TV channels, you know, documentaries, et cetera. And and it took eight games in the last minute to decide a a winner. Well, you're playing this team eight years later when they're just, you know, they're not getting worse. They're getting even better. And, you know, you're able to beat that team through wonderful play, terrific coaching, a couple of good breaks. It worked out right. It's it's a storybook tale. These things you can only imagine and visualize, but you never expect to see. Going into the Olympics, the U.S. was, I think, either the sixth or seventh rated team in the tournament. And they had to play Sweden in the first game. They were number three. They played Czechoslovakia in the second game. Tied Sweden. And And tied them right at the end. I'm watching the play. I'm telling you. I'm not so certain that that pass didn't go to the wrong guy because it was going to one guy who would miss and went back to the point that Billy Baker shoots and goes in the net. And, and that's the beginning of good things to happen. If they lose that game, are they demoralized? Do they, no, do they go on the... It wouldn't even be the demoralized. They wouldn't have won the gold medal. They just wouldn't have won it. And then they beat the second team in the tournament, second best team in the world, 7-3? to three? Next game? Well, I'm not so certain that they were the second best team because Canadians were in the other bracket. They didn't have to play the Canadians. So, as I said, things were breaking. 
really right coming down the, the line. You talked about their training. What are some of the other innovative and creative things that the team did to prepare or execute in game? I, I have to say that the biggest things they did was the training, the, the, the methods and, and the games they played. There, there weren't anything innovative that changed the way they played because you know there's only so many things you can do in, in, in any sport. And they, they did play more of a controlled puck game than they might have. Usually you might have seen a college team play rather than dump and chase. They did control it more. They had, as I said, very skilled players who were able to handle pucks like Mark Johnson, Neil Broughton. They had so many, uh, their defense was great back there. Their, Jim Craig was magnificent goal in that game. So you had a lot of good things going with a lot of talented players and, and you had more puck control than, and maybe they, they might have had if they would have played a dump and chase game. And the fact that they were able to play at the same speed and the same level throughout the game for 60 minutes was, was a factor. It wasn't, you weren't going to outfool the Russians. You weren't going to come up with some gimmicky plays that were going to do any damage. You, you had to play the best of your ability with as much puck control as you can and certainly with as much pressure as you can put on the puck carriers as you could. Can you talk about the team chemistry and was the team designed to have great chemistry or did that chemistry grow over the six, seven months that they were together? It, it grows. It grows out of the abilities of the players to play and want to play together and play for one another. And, but they had a group of players that not only were talented, they were committed. And I have to say they were driven and they had a lot of belief in each other, which was really important. They as they played through the season, as they grew, they had to believe in one another. Then now they they didn't give up either because the, the week before the tournament starts, they got hammered in Madison Square Gardens by the Russians. And that wasn't a you know, a set deal. And they didn't want to play bad or something. It was just the Russians being dominant. But they didn't get demoralized, they didn't quit believing in themselves and and they looked ahead at playing a game at a time as best as they could. And that turned out to be good enough. Our guest today is Hockey Hall of Famer Lou Nanny. We just talked to Lou about the construction of the 1980 USA Olympic hockey team. When we return, Lou will share what it was like at the Olympic Games in Lake Placid, New York, as the team went on its improbable gold medal run. Hi, everybody. This is your podcast host, Don McPherson. At 12 Geniuses, we write, report, and speak about the trends shaping the way we live and work. As we look toward entering a new decade, technologies like 3D printing, artificial intelligence, gene editing, and more and more sophisticated robots will continue to disrupt and change our society. If these trends are important to you, we invite you to follow us on social media. And to book me to speak at your next event, contact us at future at 12geniuses.com. We are back with Lou Nanny. In this segment, Lou shares what his expectations were for the U.S. hockey team going into the 1980 Olympic Games. He also talks about being a professional sports general manager and his strategy on talent selection and building team chemistry. So you alluded to a game that they played three days before the Olympics started in Madison Square Garden. They got beat by the Soviets 10 to 3. Right. What was the strategy behind scheduling that game? There was no, it wasn't a strategy. A lot of it was money for us in the U.S. I was part of the USA 
hockey and it was a big draw. You know, we get some money out of this stuff. It wasn't, we weren't thinking, oh, we're going to play him in the finals or, you know, that this was set up before. This was essentially a money deal. Maybe it helped because the Russians might've got a little overconfident by the time they got to play him in the finals. So the U.S. team loses 10-3 three days before the, the game start. What did you think their ceiling could be? I thought that they could win the bronze. I thought that they could, you know, get third. I never, ever thought that they'd get a silver. And I certainly didn't believe they'd get a gold. When did you believe they could get a gold? When the, when the buzzer blew. <laughs> for which game? For the, when they were <laughs> playing so the Russians. <laughs> when they were playing the Soviets. I was sitting right there and I waited till that buzzer went down. I... And they, they were putting pressure on all the time, and especially near the end, they were right, and I was right at the, at the blue line, our blue line at that time, so the puck was in the zone. I'm watching it. We got it out, and then that's when I'm starting to feel we got a chance. <laughs> the last 10 minutes after yeah. the U.S. goes ahead 4-3, to three, the last 10 minutes, it is just a frenzy. Yeah. And the U.S. team is doing everything they can to to cling to life, so it's it's dramatic, and you know, maybe you remember what the shot count was. I think it was 39 to 16 was, or something yeah. like that. So the Soviets... Craig Craig was great. The goaltender was superb. He couldn't play a better game than he played that night. They beat the Soviets, and they have one more game left. So right, against they, the Finns. They don't have the gold medal yet. Right. Mm-hmm. How does the team avoid a, a letdown? Well, they had a letdown for two periods. They're behind two goals in the second. Herb told him, if you guys don't win tonight, you're going to take it to your grave, you know? It's, it's hard to avoid a letdown because everybody was focusing on the Soviets, not realizing you still got to win that game against the Finns. And then when you go in a game against the Finns, you're still coming from the euphoria of beating the Soviets like you did. And so, but he got, he got them turned around by the third period and they came back and won that game. Did you have any trepidation or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you're down by two in the third against the Finns are a good team. Finns have had a lot of, they had a lot of experience in world competition and Olympics. So these were good players. How did the team deal with going from zero expectations to the whole country paying attention in just two weeks? Because that was the case, right? Well, yeah, but you got to realize we're in Lake Placid. They're in Lake Placid. I was there watching. And Lake Placid is a town of about 5,000 people. They're immune. I was immune. No one had an idea what was going on in the rest of the world. It was like you're in your own little town here. Nobody knows that the rest of the world is high, low, watching the games or anything. There's TV, you didn't have the kind of TV you have at this time. I don't think the game was even televised at that time. I think it might have been recorded. recorded. I think so. So I'm I'm saying that, you know, we think now that everybody in the rest of the world is going crazy. No, not until it came to that final, until they're playing the Soviets and they were undefeated and now they're, you know, you hear they beat them and the game's recorded and that's when the euphoria and attention really started to come. I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that where you feel like you're in a glass booth just watching a game or they're playing a game and nobody else knows anything about it. Yeah, that's a really good point because I remember being a kid. I was 11 years old at the time and I don't think we saw the game live, but we didn't oh. know who won. Yeah. You know, there, there just wasn't, there were no phones. And no. The new, newscast at five o'clock or whatever, and I don't think that was covered either. You're talking 40 years ago, you know, <laughs> media was a lot different than the media coverage and, and uh, social media, et cetera. It just didn't exist. Can you describe the atmosphere before the Soviet game in the arena? Well, uh, a lot of apprehension and uh, 
there was a complete buzz because it was filled with American flags and American people, small arena, you know, what we have about 6,000 in there and two undefeated teams. And even though U.S. got hammered, you know, a couple of weeks before, there's always the dreaming that what if this could happen? And so the anticipation of seeing how the U.S. was going to react after having, you know, got demolished in Madison Square Gardens. And the opportunity to, if if only the U.S. can win this one game, this one game, if this could really happen, this is like make-believe world. And that's that's what you're sitting, feeling, and thinking, and everybody's the same way. And and so the excitement was just building up till, till the game started. And then what's it like during the game? Oh, it was just wild. Mayhem. Yeah, it was just nuts. And especially when the U.S. scored their first one and then got in the game, you know, and, and then... And then they're close, and then they tie it, and then they go ahead, and now the just the clock seems like it's not moving; it's broken, and you're wondering why it's going so slow. It just it was crazy. Have you ever experienced anything like that in your life, sports wise? Sports wise, that's the biggest upset I've ever seen in anything. So no, I I can't think of anything that that rivals that. Can you talk about what Herb Brooks was like? Herbie's uh, very intense. He's very motivated. He was somewhat introverted you know, unless you knew him. He, he sort of changed. He was, he was more outgoing and fun-loving when we were playing before the Olympic Games. But once he got to coaching the Olympic teams, that Olympic team, he was, he was so driven. I think he, he was taking it upon himself and he was keeping a lot of stuff inside. But he, he knew what he wanted. He was a guy that could motivate you and, and talk to you. But he's also, I think, a terrific strategist. And he also had a great feel for knowing what his team needed, like the conditioning. He needed a blatherwick to get them in that kind of condition that he needed. He knew what he wanted, and he was driven to get there. How did he know how far he could push the team? No one can tell you how another guy knows this or that, but having been with him for so much of our lives, I, I would say that it, it was a feel. He had a great feel for what was needed, what was expected. And I think he had a, a thought process that said, they have to do this, or I got to get somebody else, or I won't play them, you know, so. So we talked about the, the atmosphere before the game, during the game after uh, with the Soviets. What was it like afterwards? It was bedlam. I remember I went down to the locker room, and, and uh, he was sitting in the hallway outside alone I went sat down beside him and 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 his words were can you effing believe it and I said no I can't <laughs> and and he's just he was like in another world he was like in a daze you know and most people were in a daze when you saw something that you would only dream and hope that would happen but never expect it to happen and and this is magnified by everybody so you're you're living in the never never land what does it feel like to put on the USA jersey one of the greatest things that can happen for you is playing, representing your country, playing for your country, competing for your country. And, and you never, ever have the feeling that you have in that locker room. The closest I had was in the Stanley Cups playoffs who I played and, and the semifinals, but reached the finals as a manager. The excitement, the exuberance is there, but there's a little extra, a little different when you're competing at the uh, world stage, especially the Olympics for your country, there's, in my mind, 
there probably is more pressure, but you don't think about the pressure. You just think about what you're doing and, and why you're there and uh, what the competition's about. And you obviously grew up in Canada. Right. You became a U.S. citizen in 1967 and then played for the U.S. Olympic team in 68. How did that all come about? Well, like I told you, I was sitting out for five years. I had a very successful college career and I'd won all the awards. And I thought I had a contract agreed to in, in June of 63. And when it came to training camp in the fall, they sent me the letter to camp about my contract. And I said, well, you forgot to send a contract. Well, you get it at camp. Well, in those days, the NHL had all the power. You know, nothing over players. I said, well, I, we've already agreed to terms. I want the contract. And I said... Bobby Hull doesn't even get it till he comes to camp. And I said, I really don't care about Bobby Hull's situation. I said, I got a college degree now. I got a wife. And now I got a, a month old baby. I said, I want my, you know, a, a contract. I'm not coming. He said, well, you won't play. So I was stubborn enough to sit out. And then a the year later, they come, and this went on for five years. They said, okay, play now. But I, I kept making more money. I was making way more money than they're making the NHL. So I didn't. So people from the U.S. came to me and says, look, would you play for the Olympic team? And I said, no, I can't. I'm Canadian. He said, well, we'll get a bill put through Congress for you, which they did. So I got instant citizenship, and then I was captain in 6018. I want to I talk a little bit about your experience as a general manager of a hockey team, because I think, well, let me just ask you this question in terms of talent selection. What are the things that you looked for in a player? Was it strength, speed? Was it there? Well, there's not one thing. You, you look for a lot of things. But yeah, first what, of all, what, are the, what are the dimensions? First of all, you got to have hockey sense. If you can't have hockey sense, you can't play. And you definitely want to have speed because speed kills, speed wins. But, you know, if you don't have hockey sense, I, I used to say I had a cousin in Sault Ste. Marie who was the fastest thing in the world. But if you open up the end boards, you skate to the steel plant. So, <laughs> so you, you have to know you have to have hockey sense. You got to have speed. You have to have a competitiveness. You have to have intestinal fortitude you 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 realize you got to get guys that have to play through a lot of tough things and you know you you like to have there there's different skills you want you want to have people with hand skills you want to have people that are are aggressive there's a combination when you're putting a team together you can't you can't be all sophia you know hennings but you know you can't be all crushers either so you want you want to get the right blend where you can play, I used to say, we want to have a team that play the game any way you want to play it as, your, as an opponent. You want to play fast, hard, skilled? Yes. You want to play tough? Yes. Whatever you want to do, we can do. And we can do better. That's what you look to get. So multidimensional. They have to be durable too, I would imagine. Because oh, yeah. I, it, th that well, to me is one of the big differences between college sports and professional sports is the ability to answer the bell every day. Well, one thing about hockey players, and uh, I think uh, Bud Grant, a football, great football coach from the Vikings, said it best. He says, uh, ability to, to play and not be injured all the time is a skill. But hockey players play through more injuries than any other people I know. So it's hard to say that I, I haven't seen too many hockey players that are hurt all the time is what I'm saying. They're very, very few and far between. So many that are hurt, but they were able to play and they played through pain. And in the olden days, like before I played and when I played, you didn't want to come out of the lineup because you might not get back in the lineup. So you play with a lot of different things that you wouldn't play with today. And that's something that, you know, it's just like thinking. When, when we talk about a hockey player, 
and I talk about you know having uh, hockey sense. Your head is part of your talent. People, you know, say, oh, he could skate, he can shoot, he can handle a puck, and that. How does he think the game? Because the head is another talent level. And it's the same thing in hockey as far as injuries. Injuries, another thing, you know, how how tough are they? And usually it's been unequivocal. Hockey players, for the most part, they, they play with a lot of different injuries. Yeah. There is a big difference between being hurt or in pain yeah. and being injured, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Injured, probably going to be taken out of the lineup. Right. Hurt, everybody's hurt. Yeah. April and May, everybody's exactly. hurt. Yeah. That's what I said. I mean... I once said, after I had a plane crash and I was getting off the plane, we all of us lived and, and there were six of us on there and and I wasn't moving too fast. And the, this nurse came running down because he had already called the medics. She says, stop, you're hurt, you're hurt. I said, I've been hurt my whole life. I said, I'll tell you if I'm, <laughs> if I'm bad after I get to shore here. <laughs> in, in hockey, you know, people are typically drafted pretty young, but don't necessarily play when right. they're young. It seems like a bit of, bit more of a crapshoot than, say, the NBA. It is, by how, far. Yeah, how do, you, how do you manage that as a general manager? Well, I'll tell you. I, what happened was I drafted the first 18-year-old because it was in 79. The draft used to be 20 years old, like an older draft you have in football and basketball, et cetera. Well, Tom McCarthy was a great junior player in Canada, and, they, and his agent was Art Kaminsky, and they were going to charge challenge the right to work rule in the u.s because they figured this kid could play we're going to make him play now because years and years before that they had one time bep goodland played at 16 in the nhl but then when things came about you know sort of settled down over the years then the draft became 20 years old and we didn't want to pick out players younger because all you do is make more mistakes notwithstanding the fact that most of them can't play you might have three four or five at the most are going to play but because this challenge was coming, we knew we were going to lose. The NHL, we changed the rules to allow us to draft at 18. And so I picked Tom McCarthy. And he was the first 18-year-old guy to come. And he had a good career, if I remember. Yeah, he, had a, he was a very talented player. He actually was drafted, I think it was in the midget draft in, in Ontario, ahead of Gretzky. He went one, Gretzky went two. But, hmm. but he, had, he, could have been, he could have played longer and better, but he had some personal problems that affected that. Otherwise, he was magnificent. You're a very talented player. What's it like to lead former teammates? Well, when I took over on that Thursday morning, I walked in the locker room. I said, guys, I said, uh, yesterday I was your teammate and today I'm your boss. I said, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you're still friends of mine and I'm going to do what I have to do to make this team better. And after I do that, whether you still consider me a friend is your prerogative, but I, it's not going to change my feeling towards you, but it, it certainly is going to affect the way I have to make deals or, or or run this club. So I just want you to know that I'm still your friend, but now I'm your boss and things are going to have to change here and we're going to have to make some moves. And the first guy I traded was I, I rode to the game with for four years, you know, and just, I mean, that's just the way it was. You, you just have to realize that whatever position you're in, in business, when you, one day you might be working for someone, next day you might be the boss and, and your obligations change, your, your duties change. And and if you're going to be successful in business or anything, you, I have, I have a saying when I go out to talk to people, I say, do your job. Whatever that job is, do your job. I tell them a story about John Ferguson. He was in the league. Like, he was as tough a guy as there was in the league. He'd fight like crazy. And he was on a Montreal Canadiens because he made sure that everybody else could do their job. 
And I say, we get guys that come in the league, you know, as a crusher, they score two goals, they want to be a rusher, next thing you know, they're an usher. So <laughs> Ferguson never let that happen. He wouldn't walk down the street in the same side of the street as the player that he was playing against during the year because he didn't want to talk to him, didn't want to know him or anything. He knew how to do his job. And that's the same thing in business. No matter what you do, whether you're an executive or you're an administrative assistant or whatever your duties are, you're working in the shop, you got to do your job. And that's when a company becomes successful and people are doing their job properly. You had a great hockey career. You've had a great business career. What are one or two lessons you took from hockey and applied to business? Relentlessness, driven perseverance, not not leaving the stone unturned. You, you know, I, I I have to tell you, I still work. I'm today, even though I'm 78 years old, because I can't play hockey anymore. <laughs> I I love to play. I can't play. I'm too old. But I miss the competition. I need I need the wins. So I'm in it just to compete. I and you know, people say, why don't you retire? I says I'd be bored. I I have. It's like the adrenaline for me. It feeds me. I. I have to compete. This is my competition and that's what I enjoy. And I think anybody that's working, you have to, if you want to be successful, you have to really drive to be successful. You have to, you have to have an attitude that you want to be the best that you can be. You, you really try and leave no stone unturned to make you better at what you do. If you've played athletics mm -hmm. yeah. and are in sales, there is something beautiful about the win in sales. It doesn't completely replace the win on the ice or on the court or whatever, but it's pretty similar. Oh, it, it, feels, it, it, it does. Good. It does. Oh, yeah, believe me. But what you have to remember, even if you're a salesperson, other people made you successful. I, I have a bunch of people who have to do a lot of work for me before I make a presentation. And so when I have a win, I celebrate the win with all of them because it's not just you that made it's it your successful. Team. It's your team. It's your it's, team. That's my team behind me. Absolutely. That, and, and I want them to know that they're important in the success that we have because I can't do some of the things they do. Some people can't do some of the things I do. I can't do some of the things a lot of people do. And, and so it takes everybody to make a success of whatever you're doing. And you should recognize that and realize that, you know, I don't come back from uh, getting a victory and, and think, oh, God, I was really good at that. How I, great I, you were, yeah. yeah. Patting yourself I, on the back. I know it, I'd be nothing. I, I, I'm in the investment management business. I go out and get pension funds to manage. Well, if they were leaving it up to me to manage, they'd be bankrupt. And you know, I got really talented people that I work with that make it successful. When you were leading a team, how did you motivate them? What was one or two levers that you could pull in order to motivate them? Well, I, what I used to try and do is make them believe in themselves. And I can illustrate, like Neil Broughton still talks about, he says, Louis, I still remember when we beat Boston the first time you came in the locker room and you went down the lineup player by player against their player by player and said, now why, and we'd never beaten Boston in our history. And this was in the, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And, and, and he says, I remember you going by player by player, how this our guy is better than their guy here. He's also fired up to get out in the ice. You know, I, I knew we were better. And, and we did. We beat him three in a row. And we put them out. And I, 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 I always try and make the person believe in their capabilities and what they can achieve because I believe in what they can achieve. That's why I'm saying that. I, I really feel that way and I want them to feel that way. You know, you can achieve a lot more when you know people you, that are counting on you believe in you. And I think that's very important. I think that's one way. And the other way is, you know, just basically it's like, who's going to take food off my table? <laughs> 
It's either me or you going to eat here, you know, and, and try and get them to be tough enough, mentally tough enough to know, hey, it's you or me. And no matter how big or how tough or how strong the other guy is, I'm not quitting. So last question. Did your mom really want you to be a dentist? Yes. As a matter of fact, her brothers, one was a doctor, one was a dentist, and she's a, fam- a family of 10, and she had to quit school to help put them through school. And and when I was 18 years old, I was a senior in high school, and, and I said, Mom, I need a new pair of tacks for $92. She says, quit hockey. She says, you're going to be a dentist. I said, Mom, if you give me a pair of skates, I'll get a scholarship. Don't worry about a scholarship. She said, we'll find a way to pay. You're going to be a dentist. So I went to my grandmother to go to my father because my father, I was, we lived with my grandmother and, and grandfather. And so my grandmother said, hey, Mike, your son, Louis needs some skates. You better make sure he gets them. So I got them. <laughs> so I got a scholarship to Minnesota. That's what happened. $92 back then. Yeah. No Pretty, yeah. yeah. That was a lot of money then. So I think your mom was onto something because when I did learn that you were she wanted you to be a dentist. I thought, well, maybe she understood your relationship with hockey and the teeth getting knocked well, out. Well, that's and- <laughs> When I came down here, he showed me around the campus. What do you want to see? I said, I want to see the dental school. He says, why? You're supposed to knock out teeth. Now put them in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lou, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure, Don. Thank it's you. It's been fantastic. And thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Thanks also to the amazing team that makes this show possible. Devin McGrath is our production assistant. Ryan Bierbaum is our research and historical consultant. Toby, Tony, Jay, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London make sure the sound and editing are top-notch. To learn how 12 Geniuses can prepare leaders for a rapidly changing business world influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, please go to 12geniuses.com.